0: Attention, all personnel, incoming podcast. This
1: is MASH Matters. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to MASH Matters. This is a podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time thank you for listening. Thank you for streaming or downloading or whatever you do, wherever you do it. We really do appreciate you listening. And I need an introduction. My name is Ryan Patrick. I am just a big MASH fan, but my partner needs no introduction. So I'm not going to introduce him. (laughs)
0: That's, no. a, <laughs> that's a perfect way to introduce your partner. Yeah, he's, yes. he's doing introductions. It's not a heck with him. Let him sit there in his underwear. What do we care? Yeah,
1: that's right. That's All right. right. No, my partner, I'm thrilled to have uh, as my partner on this podcast adventure, Mr. Jeff Maxwell, Private Igor himself, the old weenie creamer. Hello, sir. How Just are you Just a today?
0: minute here. I don't think you can say that on a podcast. <laughs> Ryan, this is an exciting podcast for us, isn't it?
1: Goodness gracious, this is tremendous! You know, this is our twentieth episode, which, by the way, happy twentieth episode anniversary to you.
0: What did you get me? I don't have any. Nothing arrived at the door. There's no flowers, nothing. So, uh,
1: you know, I'm 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 going to save it for the twenty eighth episode where we release the <laughs> big story. You know, that's okay. coming up soon. So, it
0: is coming up. Isn't yeah,
1: it? <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll celebrate them. But uh, yeah, no, this is this is a big episode for us. Not just because we made it to twenty episodes. But because we uh, have a very special guest now, I want to say, if this is your first time listening to MASH Matters, what
0: is the matter with you? If it is, where have you been? You ninnies, for gosh (laughs) sakes, what's going on out there?
1: No, uh, if this is your first time. I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other great episodes we've done, including interviews with such luminaries as Kelly Nakahara, Nurse Kelly herself. That was a, that was a lot of fun, wasn't that it? That was tremendous. Absolutely. We talked to uh, producer and writer John Rappaport. We talked to Dan Wilcox, one of the writers. Uh, we've had some wonderful people. But this interview is really, really special because we have an opportunity now to to talk to Mr. Mike Farrell.
0: Mike Farrell, the guy who played B.J. Honeycutt on Mesh, is here
1: with us. He's not here right well, now. he's not he, here right now. He was here. He was here. We had a wonderful conversation
0: with him. He, he We let him get away.
1: <laughs> he's a slippery little fella.
0: He's slip, and he's strong. He's tall, so you don't want to mess with him. <laughs> If he wants to go, you let him go because you never know what can happen.
1: And we let him go after we tied him to a chair and made him answer questions for about 90 (laughs) minutes. No, it was. I'll tell you, this was this is an absolute thrill. Uh, It was a wonderful thing to talk to him and now to be able to share our conversation. And this conversation is so good that we're actually splitting it up into two parts and you're going to hear part one now, and then you'll hear part two uh, at our next release date. Which, by the way, if this is your first time, we release on the first and the fifteenth of every month. It
0: was very exciting. I have not had a great deal of conversation with Mike for a long time. Uh, we do communicate via email, but it was really nice to talk to him. It was it was wonderful for me to to have that experience again after uh, you know a long long time absence and conversation. So that's very fun. We had a good time, didn't we?
1: We sure did. It is a wonderful conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. So here, without further ado, is part one of our conversation with Mike Farrell.
0: I'm going to start with something just because it's new to me, and this this really impacted me when I learned this. And uh, I have to admit to you, Mike, that I did not know about your book until we started to you know, figure out that we were going to have this conversation, so... I bought the book and I read the book. And first of all, I really thank you for mentioning my name in the book. And as I said to you, I'm very honored that (laughs) my name is actually in that book. Uh, And the book is called Just Call Me Mike, A Journey to Actor and Activist. Anybody who's listening to this, please go buy the book. You will really enjoy it and learn a great deal about a lot of things, especially Mike Farrell. But it's a wonderful, wonderful book. So thank you for writing it. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, You've traveled through El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Russia, Israel, Rwanda, Somalia, so forth and so on. I'm just going to read one little paragraph here. Uh, It was well after midnight when we got the call. Picked up in military jeeps and flanked by stone-faced machine gun bearing soldiers, we were taken to a hospital somewhere in the city. It was an eerie ride. Everything about it implying a potential attack at any moment. My goodness, Mike. <laughs> and your <laughs> book is filled with those moments. What in the world? I mean, I, I, I read and I think this guy is Superman. I thought he was a nice actor. <laughs> you are Superman. What you've gone through in the, in the refugee camps, I am so impressed. What was that like?
2: That in particular, that moment was horrifying. It was scary as hell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, it, you know, it's also uh, having been in circumstances like that, not like that in particular, but similar. You, you have two things going on. One is you're trying to do everything you can to protect yourself. And the other is you're watching and thinking about, honest to God, this is really happening. And I'm here. And this happens in this world. And these people are exposed to this kind of stuff all the time. And... If I pay attention and I get out of it, I can maybe let other people in the world know about it.
0: Well, yeah, if you get out of it, my goodness, to to be that dedicated and brave, frankly, I mean, you have a family, so it's not just like you, you know, by yourself roaming around, you can kind of do anything you want. But to have the courage and the dedication to do that and to go into refugee camps and very dangerous territories uh, to deliver medicine and food and so forth uh, is a remarkable thing. I, I, I was really impressed. And I hope anybody, uh, everybody will read that book. You're going to be as impressed as I am. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome.
1: Yeah. The book has been out actually for a while. I, I read it when it first came out. Was that 2000? What year was that? 2008? 2008. Right. Almost ten, a little over 10 years ago. Right. Wow. And w- what made you want to write the book? Um, I was asked
2: to write the book by um, the, one of the, uh, at the time, co-publishers. And, it, it you know, it was a flattering thing to be asked to do and a little scary, frankly. But then I I thought, well, you know, I can write about, I I don't want to write a book about Hollywood, uh, although you you can't avoid, if you're an actor, you can't avoid writing to some degree about your career and about the people you've (laughs) run into, as it were. Um, (laughs) But I also, you know, I, I have had some other kinds of experiences that I thought might be valuable to at least record and have out there for anybody who was interested
1: well one little nugget i remember um from the book uh, and again it's been a while since i've read it but you and i share something in that we both had crushes on natalie wood only you had it <laughs> in like the second grade because you were in class with her ah.
2: yeah yeah and one doesn't let go of those kinds of crushes or memories she was uh she was always sort of, you know, that what I said in the book was where maybe I said in talking to somebody about it, she had such incredible poise, even then, mm-hmm. you know, her response to somebody ratting me out and saying, you know, Mike has a crush on you. Uh, and she turned to me and said, "Why, well, Mike, why didn't you say so? Or why didn't you tell me? I guess. Man, <laughs> I got. I wanted to run and hide. And how old were you? What was the? When was second it? grade? Hmm. Probably eight years old. Oh
0: God! Isn't that amazing how how strong those memories are and how that sticks with you?
2: Well, yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, it's, sure. But it was Natalie Wood. Natalie you know? Wood. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Yeah, wow. You know, i talking about writing the book in 2008, and I've been reflecting on the, you know, the wonderful uh, accomplishment of the Apollo moon mission that was 50 years ago. Mm. And then I kind of... Yeah, amazing. Yeah, what an amazing thing to have done. And I watched the documentary the other night. These guys were just so casual about it. Good grief, what they did is phenomenal.
2: I tell you what else is, I mean, I quite agree with you, but what else is phenomenal is that there is an active group of individuals in this country who continue to insist that it never happened. Oh, yeah. I, I, I find that just stunning.
0: We could talk about a lot of stunning things that <laughs> are happening today,
2: couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we could.
0: Maybe for another podcast. I kind of don't want to go there, but I am I was reflecting on how long ago MASH ended, no. which was 30 30- six years ago. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And people are still talking about it. It is still impactful. People are, you know, this is a podcast called MASH Matters because it does to a lot of people in a lot of different ways.
2: Yes, indeed. Phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, well named, by the way, I I was thinking about the name of it. There are MASH Matters and MASH does matter. So it's
0: really... Lovely. Thank you. And, and you know, it, it matters. Uh, Ryan and I are different in that Ryan grew up being a, a an ardent fan of the show by watching it. Uh-huh. I kind of, quote, grew up being there and working there. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I have a different emotional response to it than Ryan and and then people who watch the show. And certainly you. We're, we're that, it was kind of a job. We all loved Yep everybody and loved what we were doing, but it wasn't the kind of the same emotional tug that it was, I think, for fans.
2: No, it wasn't. Um, But I I must say, God, I remember coming back. I was in Southeast Asia, I guess, uh, sometime between our third, my third and fourth year. I shouldn't say our third and fourth year. And the people I ran into were so incredibly grateful for the show. They were so plugged into it and so appreciative of the message of it. And I came back and, and the first day, you know, we had our hiatus and then came back the first day. Mm-hmm. And I, sa- I sat down to Alan. and I said, are you hearing what I'm hearing out there? <laughs> and he said, he said, yeah. And we, we just, we talked about it for a while. It's, it was sort of, I mean, on one hand, it's it's very prideful. You, you feel a great deal of, of joy about this reaction you hear from people uh, in different parts of the world, not only this country, but different parts of the world, about the show but also the, the degree of emotional connection and the sense of import mm-hmm. that it has in their lives. And I think it just um, reinvigorated our determination to do the best damn job we could in order to not, not, not let all those people down.
0: Well, you did. <laughs> yeah,
1: you did. <laughs> you did. You did that. Speaking as an as an ardent fan of the show, uh, first of all, this is an absolute thrill to get to talk to you today. But um, that's nice. Thank you. It, it's a situation where we're talking about something that you did uh, one job that you had over thirty six years ago, and I know that you have talked ad nauseum about Mash throughout the years. So one of my first questions for you is, what's the one question about Mash that you're just tired of answering, so that I don't ask that question? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, uh, you mentioned ad nauseum. There's no nausea here. I, uh, I am so in love with the show, the experience of having done it, so grateful for it, so infatuated with my memories of the people associated with it that I, I have no problem whatsoever talking to anybody about it. And, and I mean anybody. People who are fans, people who who have bones to pick about something that was done or said, or Mm -hmm. people who just didn't like the show, whatever the case. I just have no problem. I mean... How many times can you answer the question, is Alan Alta as nice as he seems to be?
0: <laughs> you didn't really answer that, did you? <laughs> that's not something you want to answer.
2: <laughs> or, or the other one is, did you have as much fun doing the show as we did watching it? Mm-hmm. And that's not something I'm tired of answering. It's just something I hear an awful lot. And my answer is always, we had much more fun doing the show than you have watching it. <laughs> uh, we just, you know, for us, it was one hell of a good time.
1: I know that you have told this story many, many times in, in many different mediums, but if you wouldn't mind just giving us a Reader's Digest version of your path to being B.J. Honeycut.
2: Sure. Um, it depends on how much information you want, but I was under contract at uh, Universal doing a show with, uh, with Anthony Quinn. And um, at one point, um, you get to know people on the lot. I was at Universal Studio and I was doing a show with Anthony Quinn. I mean, how can you say no to the possibility, the opportunity to do a show with Anthony Quinn? But I had gotten to know, casually, um, Burt Metcalf, who was a casting director at Universal. And I bumped into him on the the lot one day and he said, I'm going to say goodbye. And I said, really? He said, yeah, I'm leaving Universal. I'm going over to 20th. I'm going to do... Uh, a new should be associated with a new show over there and I said oh good luck you know great I'm, I'm I'm thrilled for you I remember that only because you know you know the obvious connection but I didn't make anything in particular out of it at the time I was doing this wonderful show or having a wonderful time doing this show with Tony Quinn and then the show was canceled and then I was under contract to Universal and bouncing around they wanted me to do this episode of that and that episode of this and some of it was really stupid and I said no and I was Peck's bad boy on the set for on on the lot for a while Um, because they they said, you know, if you don't do this episode, we we have to suspend your contract and you're not going to get paid. And I said, yeah, okay. (laughs) And and (laughs) then we'd go on and they'd say, okay, now you're back on. We'd like to have you do this episode. I'd say either yes or no, depending. Now, this is irrelevant to the story, but it's relevant only as it follows they called me and my agent into the black tower to talk to one of the execs there. And he said, look, we've got this problem here. Mike doesn't have script approval, so he can't just say, no, I'm not going to (laughs) do this episode. (laughs) And his agent said, well, now you send him the scripts. And they said, sure. We send him the script that we want him to do. And he said, and he reads it and he doesn't want to do it. And they said, yeah, but he doesn't have the the right to (laughs) not do it. He's under contract. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and my agent said, "Well, if he doesn't do it, what happens?" He said, "Well, when do we take him off his contract." And they said, "Okay, fine." Huh. And they said, "But but, <laughs> but 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 he doesn't have the right to do that <laughs> <laughs> anyway." <laughs> so we, we sort of had this relationship, and uh, somewhere in this time, I was looking at all these really, you know really stupid shows that they were wanting me to do. And there were say, a couple of good shows, which I did periodically. And I, I went to see a friend of mine and I said, we're supposed to go somewhere. And he said, wait a minute, I can't leave yet. I've got to watch, uh, i got to watch MASH. And I said, what's that? And he said, what's well, this show? I, I love this show. And I, I said, uh, I don't know this show. So I stopped there and watched this ending of this episode. And all I remember, it, it, the thing I remember about it was Gary Berghoff. Radar was in some kind of dilemma, and he, Hawkeye and Trapper were probably teasing him about something. At any rate, but there was this wonderful moment with this innocent kid in the middle of a friggin' war trying to figure out what was the right thing for him to do. And I thought, oh, my God, how wonderful that there's a television show. That is dealing with these kinds of issues in a, in a framework of comedy and drama that, that works. Mm. And it's what made me crazy when, you know, Universal kept not wanting me to do one stupid thing after another. <laughs> <laughs> so I got, uh, I got a, uh, call from a producer on the lot and he said, I, I want you to be the lead in my show. This pilot, uh, I'm going to do a series. I want you to be the lead. And I said, God, that's, that's, you know, that's very flattering. Thank you. Um can I read the script? And he said, well, of course. So he gave me the script and it was just dumb.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
2: I, I, I shouldn't be so crude, but it, it was one of those joke shows, you know, where mm-hmm. there were three jokes a page and it was going to go nowhere. And, uh, I said, uh, thank you, but, uh, but no, thanks. I'm not interested. And he said, well, wh- what? And I said, uh, uh, you know, here I am an actor looking for work. And he said, you're, Turning down the lead in this television show? And I said, Yeah. And he said, Why? And I didn't want to say, I think your script is stupid.
0: <laughs>
2: so I said, and I'll never forget this. I said, well, it's not MASH. Wow. <laughs> That's great. And he said, he said, What what? What do you mean? And I said, I mean it's not about anything. And MASH is about something. I want to be in a show that's about something. Well, a year or maybe two later, my agent called and he said, uh, there's a possibility that Wayne Rogers is leaving MASH, that People over there want to know if they can meet you. Would you be willing to go to to a meeting? I said, "Will I? Will I? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll drive. I'll drive Wayne to the taxi."
2: I said, "I said, can I? I'm under contract here." He said, "We'll worry about that later. If you want to have the meeting, go have the meeting." So I went. You know, I met Gene and uh, and uh, Larry and Bert. <laughs> and there was this Bert on this little show he had gone to do, and I thought, "Oh my God, it's like <laughs> heaven sent." <laughs> And we had a wonderful conversation and they were very sweet and they, as they always were, and they, and very respectful. And they said, we, we can't promise you anything. We don't know if this contract difficulty with Wayne is going to work out or not. But if it doesn't, then we're going to want to recast and bring somebody else in. And we wanted to meet you with, you know, with, we're meeting a number of actors and we wanted to meet you as part of that. And I said, that's fabulous and wonderful. And I understand completely. And I'm nervous as hell. I love your show. (laughs) But I said, the one thing I really, um, really would not be interested in doing is stepping into Wayne's boots and playing Trapper John. I think that'd be a big mistake. And they said, oh, no, no, absolutely right. Absolutely right. We don't, you know, it's the military. People are transferred out. People leave, whatever happens. He said, they said, we have this whole new character in mind. All we know about him at this point is his name is BJ. BJ. Because uh, Billy Jurgensen was at that time the uh, director of photography on the show, a really wonderful man. Mm-hmm. So they named him BJ and they want him to, he said, we want him to be married and have a baby at home. So he's not going to be the kind of womanizer, the Hawkeye Trapper John womanizer. How do you feel about that? And I said, are you kidding me? Are you. <laughs> you, you're talking about you're talking about modeling fidelity in national television. <laughs> what a weird thing! Well, well, my God! Man. <laughs> I said, what, a, what an extraordinary idea.
0: Now, was it Bert Metcalf that actually might have called you in to meet them? Or?
2: I can only guess that it was. I thanked Burt about yeah. uh, yeah, seven hundred thousand times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Wayne did leave. That's right. And. You were called up. They called.
2: Well, they they actually asked then if I would be willing to uh, to do a screen test with uh, Alan, and they, they they quickly said, you know, this is not a screen test to see if you can act. We know you can act, but we want to see what kind of chemistry exists. And there are two other actors that were testing as well. And I said, okay, sure, absolutely. And uh, I got lucky.
0: Can I tell you a little secret? I'll share this with you. I kind of <laughs> secretly shared this with Ryan a few minutes ago, but uh, I was there. When you did the screen test? Oh no, kidding! Yeah, I and I saw everybody. I, I know there was you and um, Alan Fudge, Alan Fudge, and Jamie Cromwell, Jamie Cromwell. I think there was a fourth. Oh, a fourth actor. I don't remember his name, but I think there was. I, I, I think he was he was first, which. I can't imagine going first to (laughs) to do the screen test for that. Jesus, right. Oh, my God. I'm getting nervous just thinking about it. Uh, (laughs) I, I think you were fourth. I think that's right. Yeah. And I watched everybody and I thought, wow, everybody was obviously, they were all very terrific actors. And Jamie Cromwell was terrific. But there was a moment between you and Alan that was in the air. And while uh, maybe the dialogue was one thing or the other or something happened or didn't happen, but when there wasn't any dialogue, what was in the air between you and he was really special. And I remember walking out thinking, wow, that's got to mean something, because it, it was real serious and and very, um, very visible. So there you go. <laughs> oh, that's... That's
2: wonderful. I, that's thrilling to hear, Jeff. Thank you. I, uh, You're welcome. All I knew <laughs> in the air, my brain was in the air. I didn't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: it
1: must have been. <laughs> Man, I thought,
2: oh my God, what have I done? Did I I, I? I remember going to my car, thinking, Jesus Christ, Mike, this is a comedy. You're supposed to be funny. You goddamn idiot. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, well, maybe Alan was thinking the same thing, but whatever it was, worked. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad. <laughs> between, the, between the two of you, really, in the silences, in the moments between there, there was something very, very special. And I, I think that was very meaningful to everybody.
2: Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. It's, uh, it's nice. All I know is I got that call.
1: Well, let's talk about that. You got the call. And so you are on the show. Do you remember anything in particular about those first days on the set? Oh sure. The first day in particular, two things. The that the night the day
2: I got the show, the day I got the call, I got a second call asking me if I'd have dinner with Alan, mm. which was just phenomenally generous of him. And we met in Hollywood at a Chinese restaurant and we sat and talked about his ideas, about the show, about his feelings, about what he wanted out of the show and how happy he was to, you know, have me coming in. And it was heaven sent. I mean, and one of the most generous acts on on a part of an actor that i think i've ever seen particularly a lead actor in a you know situation like that that was one thing so i was excited Mm -hmm. i was terrified that i was going to be bad and you know (laughs) (laughs) i've i've said many times many many times that i was i feel felt like i was wearing an albatross around my neck which was if this show in its fourth season was canceled for whatever reason, I would wear it for the rest of my life. (laughs) And and I, God knows, didn't want that to happen. So I went in, went on the set and I thought, you know, I'd been thinking, Jesus, this is great. I mean, he was so nice to me and isn't that great, but there are all these other people too. And they've been working with Wayne and they probably feel some sense of loss about his having departed. And Maybe some resentment about this guy. Who the hell does he think he is coming in to, to replace our beloved, you know, Trapper John? I thought, oh, God, what's it going to be like? And I walked on the set. And the first person to walk up to me was Gary, who stuck out his hand. He said, I'm Gary Berghoff. Welcome aboard. Loretta did the same thing. Bill Christopher did the same thing. Larry Linville did the same thing. It was just, I just thought, oh, God, I have fallen into paradise I, this is yeah mm. sort in my wildest dreams i had hoped for something like this and, and here i was and the second thing we sat down and read through the script which was another i mean you're it's nirvana for god's sake i was through places where they threw a script at you and said here's your mark hit your marks and shut up otherwise mm. and here they we sat down around this table and gene was the director and he said okay mike here we're, we're gonna read through the script uh, so that they can get a timing and have a little sense of it. And I said, great. And then we read through the script. And at the end of the reading, he said, okay, page one. And I looked at him and he said, Oh, oh, here, we just want to know if anybody has any questions, any thoughts, any suggestions. And I thought, are you kidding me? Are you <laughs> kidding me? You want to hear from us? And, and uh, uh, it was, uh, it, again, it was just like magic town. I, uh, and, and some, you know, I, I heard actors say, I think this joke could work better if Bill said it or maybe that maybe we need to do try this here. And I thought, God, and they're paying attention to these actors and they want to know what actors think and they're open to their ideas. Oh, this is like <laughs> I'm somebody pinch me, you know.
1: Do you think Alan Funt was going to walk around (laughs) the corner and... uh... (laughs) You are
0: on candid camera. Yeah,
1: yeah, there was that sense. This is all a joke, (laughs) pal.
0: You know, I, I, one of the first days that I saw you and I think it was the second, wasn't the first day that you were there out at the ranch?
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. The run and the, all, the whole thing getting muddy.
0: Getting muddy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And then when you were uh, on the, uh, on stage nine, I think it was the second day and I saw you and you came into the mess tent or something. And I think I said, hi, you know, welcome to mash or said some sign of greeting. And, and you looked at me. And you, kind of, there was a moment of a deer in the headlight. <laughs> just a second, uh, it went away really fast. But there was just one second. I thought, yeah, this guy's going through. My gosh, what he must be going through! Oh man! But what fun though! My goodness! Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you just mentioned it, so I need to ask this. Uh, we did put out on uh, Facebook and Twitter if any of our listeners had questions for you. So I hope you don't mind if we throw a couple of those questions at you as we go through this. Not at all. One of the questions came from Lisa Fetzko, and she says, I always wondered during the first episode, Welcome to Korea, was Mike's faceplant into the muddy ditch an accident or was that in the script? <laughs> it was in the script. It was in the script. It was in the script that
2: I that I fell and I just, you know, went for it. Boy,
1: you sure did. Was that one take or did you have to do multiple takes of that?
2: Um, I think that particular one, because I ended up so muddy that we they only did one take of that particular one. <laughs> but we, you know, they did some cover shots where I had to change my clothes and <laughs> do other things.
0: They didn't want to lose the new guy right away. I mean, no. <laughs> that would have been bad. Uh, you know, one, uh, Ryan, you may have those questions in terms of the names who asked them. I, I remember one question. This is kind of a silly question, but what the heck? And there were a couple of questions about your mustache. Uh-huh. Uh, one of them is silly, which I'll, I'll ask. And the question was, how do you grow a mustache like that? <laughs> you <laughs> um, you don't shave in that area. It was a pretty cool mustache. And then there's another one where uh, the gentleman, and Ryan, do you have the name? There's a question about pre-mustache and uh, after-mustache.
1: Yeah, Eric Ziegler. He was interested in the way you portrayed the character of BJ pre-mustache and post-mustache. He said pre-BJ seemed a little more lighthearted, had more of a partner in crime feel with Hawkeye. Post seemed a little more serious, maybe even a little cynical and and bursts of anger, too. He's curious if that was as an actor, was that a choice that you made personally? Was it the writers who helped develop it? Did you, did you work together with the writers or was that a conscious decision?
2: Um, First of all, the the reason for the mustache. Alan called me and, uh, and during the hiatus between what was it, two and three? When, when was it? I've forgotten that the mustache came aboard. Uh, but at any rate, pre-mustache, between pre-mustache and post-mustache, or pre-mustache and mustache. <laughs> Alan called and he said, that "There, there is, there is this. Maybe there's a sense on the parts of the producers that we're too much alike. Uh, would you, what would you think about the idea of a growing a mustache?" I said, "Great." Sure, I got no problem with that. So that was the reason for the mustache. Mm -hmm. Then in terms of the development of the character, the writers clearly wanted to not, you know, they'd already done the show for three years by the time I got there. And after I was there for one year, I'm not sure if the mustache came in that next year or was it the year after that? I think they they determined a couple of things. One was they didn't want to repeat, and they didn't want to fall into the trap of repeating. And what they decided to do, and this is my intuiting what they decided, and some of it has been verified for me by conversations with the writers, but they wanted to look deeper into the characters. And they thought that having the audience get to know these characters was urgently important and necessary. For the series to continue to thrive, and also for the show to be meaningful, so the it was a kind of a combination of things. We did we did an episode. I think my first year was Larry Gelbart's last year there, I believe, and I remember Larry wrote a wonderful episode about Alan B. Hawkeye being. Uh, put into a situation where we we had a nurse temporarily assigned to the unit and she was somebody that he had had a love affair with back in the States or in during medical school or something. And of course, Blythe Danner played the role beautifully as Blythe always does. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it was a wonderful show about, you know, the two of them sort of seeing each other and she may have, may have been married at the time or something. At any rate, it was very kind of one of these oh my god we can't and oh my god we can't not and but there was a scene in it uh between alan and i between hawkeye and bj that um, he was kind of apologetic about the fact that he'd been having this now torrid affair with her and not around a lot in the swamp and he said you haven't seen me lately
0: i haven't been home much the past few weeks better that way you miss me sobbing into my pillow i think we're very happy i think you'd probably know you disapprove me you want disapproval, you disapprove. I'm not the Acme Judgment Company. A lot of married people are unfaithful. I read that in the Cheaters' Almanac. You? Me what? Ever been unfaithful? To whom? Well, who could you be unfaithful to? Myself or opener? No, no, come on, you know what I mean, to your wife. You mean if I ever strayed? Never checked in somewhere without a toothbrush. Never. Never been tempted? Tempted's another subject. Ah, you have been tempted. Never. But it's another subject, (laughs) Rhett.
2: It was was a terrific exchange between these two guys, and it was really about something deep. But at the end, after we shot it, Larry was standing there, and I went over to him and I said, that was a wonderful, fun, great scene, thank you. But I just want to raise a question with you. BJ, we're talking about BJ being faithful to his wife. I get that, and I think that's a great thing for us to be aiming for. But to suggest that he's never been tempted really, really, it seems to me goes over the top. And 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 I'm not sure that's an honest presentation. And he said, "Oh, thank you. He said, that's a very interesting thought. And the next year, Gene came up to me and he said, remember that conversation with Larry (laughs) about whether or not BJ was ever tempted? And I said, yeah, I do remember the conversation very well. And he said, what would you think about BJ falling off the Fidelity wagon? Mm-hmm. And I said, wow. I, t- I tell you, it depends on how it's done, but it's more more important to me how it's resolved.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And he said, okay. And they went away and they wrote that script. Uh, and it's one I still have people talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, those kind of life experiences happened on that set. And it's, God, it's just, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. it's just, for me, it's thrilling to go back and Remember them and think about it.
0: And what an amazing thing to be in that environment with so many incredibly talented, wonderful people. Absolutely. As human beings, not just talented as actors or writers or directors, but as human beings, this was an experience I've never had. I showed up on MASH as a guy who used to work in nightclubs as a comic with a partner. So <laughs> I came into this, it was a whole different dynamic. And Everybody was so nice and kind of adult. I, I expected it to be wild and wacky as a television show and everybody be naked and running around and have a great time. <laughs> yeah. And instead, these were like grownups. I was a little disappointed. Um, <laughs> you yeah.
1: Not enough nudity, no. <laughs>
0: yeah, not de- definitely not enough nudity. Um, but boy, what an experience and what a what a remarkable thing for me to grow up around wonderful, incredibly Intelligent, mature, adult humans, uh-huh. and and the humanity there was like no other place I've ever I've ever experienced in a in a work environment. Anyway, me too. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what was it about acting that kind of got you? Other than uh, Natalie Wood, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I certainly understand that. But what what was it about acting that kind of hooked you?
2: It was a combination of things. More of them. Um, you know, um, I, I grew up in West Hollywood. My my folks moved out here from Minnesota when I was two years old, and I grew up in West Hollywood, which is you know today a city, but then it was the the a county strip, and a lot of stuff went on, and Sunset Strip, and Mickey Cohen was shot at on Sunset Strip, and you know stuff. <laughs> it was yeah. a, it was a, it was an yeah. interesting interesting place to be and an interesting place to grow up. But you grew up. My dad was a carpenter and he got in the union and he worked in the studios at some times. And uh, one time he worked with Natalie Wood and he brought home for me a signed autograph picture. She, she claimed that she remembered me, which is bullshit. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, she was very sweet and sent home as an autographed picture. Anyway, so, but so you, you grow up in the, in the I, I often say to people, uh, you, you, you grow up in the lumber town, you go to work in the mill. It's not, it's not quite that simple, but there was this magic about the industry and my sister, I had an older sister and she used to bring home movie magazines and I'd look through them and I'd see that there were young people, kids who had careers. I mean, they had a following and they got attention and respect and what I thought was love and attention and respect, this triangle of human needs that I've subsequently found out were universal. but I. Um, without getting too self-explanatory, I, I, I grew up in a household where my dad and mom had come through the uh, depression and uh, they came from families that were not particularly um, expressive in terms of emotion. And I, I didn't know where the hell I was. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted. All I knew was I was I was deeply in need of some loving support and th- that was never given voice to and it was never shown in my family. So. I, I kind of got this idea about movies and movie stars and being in the motion picture industry and that that would give me this love and this attention and this respect that I I, mean, I wasn't thinking in those the terms of those words. I just felt like there was something missing in my life that might be provided if I was an actor
0: Well in, in, a, in a sense it, it was it actually did In a sense
2: yeah, yeah. but it wasn't yeah you, you know this, that's the that's the trap in, in my opinion. Our industry is full of the walking wounded, full of people who didn't get what they needed as children, get, didn't get, don't get the sense of fulfillment that they need as human beings, mm-hmm. and think they're going to get it from their career as an actor, mm-hmm. and don't, because it, it, it can't provide it. It doesn't work. All that bullshit that is laid on about people being stars and they're being loved and they're being this and they're being that doesn't it doesn't translate. So those people continue to be broken hollow people unless they find a way to to get to the reality of life and what they really
0: need. And yeah, they're still vacant emotionally really. It's, it's exactly. It doesn't touch that. Yeah, Exactly.
2: So in my case I, you know, my father was a dominating tough Irishman really a, a scary figure and uh, I could never say to him I wanted to be an actor so I didn't <laughs> didn't say <laughs> it until after he died and, and even then I didn't know how to go about it but I kept saying to myself, you know, I really have this urge and I want to give it a try. And after my dad died and I got in the Marines and got out of the Marines and decided I'd find a way to give it a try and got lucky. But what I got lucky in finding was that that stuff I was looking for wasn't available through my career, it was available through psychotherapy and a lot of things that a lot of experiences in life that would provide for me the things I needed rather than being given to me because i had some success as an actor
0: uh, and you talk about that a lot in your book and again i hope everybody goes out and buys that book because you go into detail about it which i don't particularly i think let's not do it here but i i am i have always been a big uh, advocate for psychotherapy and therapy of any kind because i think it's a yep. real a real good thing for everybody to do and i've always kind of hoped that, uh, and I don't know because I'm not in that environment, but I've hoped somehow in schools, if just, you know, kids were given a little bit of a taste of it as a young kid coming up in in a grammar school, even just to learn how to deal with emotions and how to interact with people and deal with their own emotions, it would help, you know, prevent a lot of difficulty and damage down the road, it certainly is not going to save everybody, but boy, it could sure help.
2: I couldn't agree more, Jeff. I think that's absolutely right on. I I was part of a social club, YMCA club that was formed, you know, from reading the book, was formed uh, and with a group of kids who got together from mostly some grammar school and mostly junior high school. And the guy who, the coach at the park who formed this club taught us, he said, once a month, we're going to have, at our regular meeting, we're going to have the chair. And the chair means one of the members sits in the chair in the middle of the room and everybody goes around the room and finds a constructive criticism to share with this individual. And I thought, well, that's a horrible thing to do.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and it turned out to be one of the most wonderful lessons that I ever... Uh, Ever had? He said, "Everybody, if you care about somebody, offering a constructive criticism—not you know, just trying to get over on somebody—but a constructive criticism is one of the most intimate and most helpful things you can ever do for somebody. Yeah, in terms of a, somebody you care about. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. I mean, with the, those kinds of things aren't offered, and they aren't certainly not in school, uh, and they they aren't generally available in society until and unless somebody has the courage to do it.
0: Yeah." It's so sad because being exposed to that would help so many people. And you say you use the word care. When you start to care about yourself, you care about other people as well. And you know what that feels like. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Well, let's start the uh, school therapy <laughs>
1: program. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go get a chair. I'll be right back. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Part one. Of our conversation with Mike Farrell. What'd you think?
0: Uh, personally, I now know how to grow a mustache like that. It's It was a secret. <laughs> when he said, don't shave, I, that was a revelation to me. It really was.
1: That's a scoop right there, ladies and gentlemen. Don't shave.
0: I'm not sure you say ladies and gentlemen in that <laughs> statement. <laughs> not sure. Maybe you can. I don't know. I don't want to be incorrect. <laughs> I don't want to
1: leave anybody out.
0: Want to grow something and then shave it later? <laughs> Go ahead. I, I, we... We don't care.
1: We don't. Hey, this has been great. This is just part one. If you thought part one was good, wait until you hear part two. Coming up in part two, we hear his thoughts on uh, MASH being too preachy he's going to talk about the decision to end mash and those final days of filming including a wonderful story of why cbs didn't want to end the korean war he talks about writing directing producing and why he became an activist it is a wonderful conversation part two will be coming soon now don't miss out you should subscribe right now on whatever podcast player that you listen to mash matters you can subscribe to mash matters whether it's apple podcast or stitcher or spotify whatever you use just subscribe now and that way part two will just show up on your phone or in your computer when it is released it's coming up soon you don't want to miss it
0: and it'll show up whether you want it to or not actually (laughs) so
1: all right well this has been absolutely wonderful and uh, looking forward to part two of our talk with Mike Farrell next time here on MASH Matters.
0: I'm gonna go not shave, see what
1: happens.